for this particular form of practice from the text, the, the great sutra on the teachings of mindfulness, is that there is a way for living beings to realize purification, overcome directly grief and sorrow, travel the path to awakening and pain, anxiety, and realize the liberation. And this is through the establishment of the great sense of awareness, of breath and body, as we've been working with and has spoken about in the evenings, of feelings and mind, and of the laws that govern this body and mind and this earth. And each time we sit to meditate, it's a little bit like we're sitting under our own tree of enlightenment. We are each the Buddha, awakening to the nature of life for ourselves. One of the most central teachings in this process of awakening is the awareness of feelings. Just as Anna spoke two nights ago about the importance of being aware of the body, the importance of being aware of the breath, there is in the same text a great emphasis on the importance of being aware of feelings. And so the invitation after taking a quiet seat and becoming aware of the breath and of the body standing or sitting or walking or lying down, the practitioner also becomes aware of feelings, of what is called feelings in the feelings, knowing when a pleasant feeling arises and when a painful feeling arises and when a neutral feeling arises feelings based in the body and feelings based in the heart and the mind. And with those basic feelings, there comes in addition an awareness of the states that arise with them. So with this same mindfulness, we become aware of agitation or remorse and the end of agitation and remorse or of grasping or fear and the end of grasping or fear, knowing when the mind or heart is at rest and when it's not composed or not at rest, knowing when the heart or mind are contracted and when they're open and free. Feelings in the feelings is the description there. Now it's very easy to be emotionally unaware. You may have noticed that. I see it in my family life. I'll get angry or upset with my daughter or my wife, who are probably sitting back there listening, um, only to discover that I was really afraid or sad or vulnerable in some way or embarrassed. But I didn't know I was afraid or embarrassed or sad or vulnerable and so I get angry. Do you know how that happens? 
so do they. It's actually amazing that we have this dimension of human feeling. It's one of the major dimensions of consciousness being alive to itself. And it's central to how we live and to our happiness. A stranger walked from the high road toward the gates of a new city. By the side of the road sat an old woman who hailed the traveler, Welcome. What kind of people are they who live here? The traveler asked. How did you find them in the home city you left? Asked the wise woman. Oh, they were gossips, mean-spirited, often selfish. He stated, difficult to get along with. You'll find the people of this city to be likewise. Later, a second stranger passed by and was welcomed by the old wise woman. Hey, what kind of people are they who live here? The traveler asked. How did you find them in the home city you left? Oh, they were fine people, industrious, usually helpful, open-minded, easy to get along with. You'll find this city to be likewise, she said. The feelings that we have are central to our happiness. Now it happens and to our, to our life as we live it. It happens that this evening is the night before Easter, the vigil outside the cave, and then the beginning signs of some resurrection or transformation. Hopefully you saw the rainbow this evening, kind of remarkable, huge, vast rainbow. Well, I think it's also worth noting that in today's paper, based on the events of yesterday, Good Friday, um, the Protestants and the Catholics of Northern Ireland came to a peace agreement to share the government in a peaceful way. And they have to put it to a vote to all of Northern and Southern Ireland, but the prime ministers and the various party leaders stayed up all day and all night for a number of days. And then on Good Friday, they signed this agreement. So we can fight with one another. If you turn it down, then I talk closer. If you leave it up, then I'll back off. Okay. <laughs> we don't have to fight about it, though. <laughs> turn it up a little bit, please. So we can struggle, as they have for 30 or 50 or 80 years. Or we can find some other way to live. It's amazing how many feelings there are. And when certain feelings arise, joy, love, it's a great day. We're in love with everybody. It doesn't matter what happens. You get in a car accident, oh, that's okay. It doesn't matter when you're in love. And then when we get out of the wrong side of the bed, it's painful, irritable, and whatever they do is wrong. The habits that we put up with for so many years, we don't like anymore. They bug us. And the transportation system doesn't work right. And nothing is right about the people around us. Because we're not aware, these invisible moods like weather 
excitement, fear, all these habits come and we get swept up in each one. My teacher Ajahn Chah put it this way. About this mind and heart, the truth is it really isn't anything. It is just a natural phenomena. Within its own nature it is already peaceful. That our mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows its moods and senses. Sense impressions come and they trick it into reacting with happiness or suffering, gladness or sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. This mind of ours is already unmoving, timeless, peaceful, really peaceful. Just like a leaf which is still as long as no wind blows. And if a wind comes up, the leaf flutters. The fluttering is due to the wind. And the fluttering is due to the grasping of these sense impressions. The mind follows them. If it doesn't follow and react to them, it doesn't flutter. If we know in each moment the nature of these impressions, we are happy at ease. Our practice is simply to see or to remember this original mind, to train the mind to know in each moment what arises and not get lost, to be peaceful just where we are. This is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. So what does it mean to be aware of feelings in the feelings? It helps to feel them in the body as they arise. Each mood and feeling that comes has a physical element to it. E. E. Cummings' poem, I thank you, God, now the ears of my ears are awake and the eyes of my eyes are opened and the heart of my heart is awakened, the feelings in the feelings. It's to sense them as they arise, in the mind, in the heart, in the body, all together. And as we begin to pay attention to the moods that come, sad or happy, frustrated, expectant, angry, joyful, we can often sense underneath a deeper feeling from the one that's on the surface, especially of difficult, conflicted feelings. So you may notice that when you feel angry, if you feel carefully, feeling and feeling, there's fear, you're afraid, or there's hurt, you've been disappointed or wounded, and then it comes out secondarily as anger. Or you may notice when there's longing and desire and grasping, it seems like we want something, but if we feel often there's a hungriness of the heart, feeding the hungry heart is the phrase, an emptiness or loneliness or longing. It's like Socrates, who lived a very, very simple life, but used to love to go into the marketplace. And his students said, why do you do that? He said, oh, I love to go and see all the things that I'm happy without. <laughs> but when there's this grasping and need, it seems like that's what's going on. And yet underneath it, there's something else. There's a hole inside, an emptiness. 
or when there's judgment and planning how it should be, how we hope it'll be. Often there's fear, insecurity, a sense of loss of control. At times, it seems that feelings originate outside of us, that they're doing it to us, as Anna or someone said, quoted Ajahn Chah the other night, it's as if the sounds come and bother us, but really it's we who go bother them. And I remember Ajahn Chah used to talk to the new meditators. He said, here you are in the forest, and it's like you're walking through the trees in this beautiful forest, and there are these guys that assault you from one side and the other. One side kicks you that way, and the other one ambushes you from that side. And it's pleasant and it's unpleasant, and you're always fighting with them, aren't you? But to be accurate, it's not a question of outside or inside. Feelings are a are an aspect of our human nature. And in Buddhist psychology, feelings are one of the five changing processes that make up our life. There's the physical process of the body, there's the feeling process, there's the recognition and kind of knowing what things are, memory process. There's the response process, all the thoughts and reactions to things. And the consciousness process. And they're always changing, feelings, consciousness, perception, response. Each moment of experience, each perception, as Anna spoke about, has a feeling tone to it, of pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. And all the moods that we experience and the reactions are elaborations on this fundamental feeling. They're based on this simple quality. And as we sit and walk, when we're not aware, pleasant experience arises and we tend to grasp it or cling on to it, want it to last. An unpleasant experience arises and we tend to resist or push it away or contract or fear it. And neutral experiences, not pleasant or unpleasant, arise. And we, ple we commonly ignore or don't notice them. We get confused or space out in some way. And as that builds over time, those reactions of grasping and resisting or fear and clinging and lack of attention turn more deeply into the energies of greed and hatred and delusion, they fuel those roots. Now somehow, I don't know how it's happened, but we have, many of us, gotten the mistaken idea that feelings are not supposed to be the way they are, which is pleasant, neutral, unpleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, neutral. Somehow we've heard some story or read something that it's not supposed to be that way. And that if we act correctly or meditate enough or have enough therapy and body work or whatever it is, that somehow if we do it right, there will be no pain, no loss, no difficulty, and no death. 
In the Chronicle recently, there was an article in the economic section called Rich in Cash but Not Happiness. And it had a graph on the front that you really can't see, but I'll hold up for the fun of it. Because, it <coughs> because economists like graphs. And one line which is rising is the income level in Japan over the last four decades, which has quadrupled in real standards the amount of disposable money, things that can be bought and vacations that can be taken, enormous rise. The other, going across the graph and actually dropping a little bit, is the happiness of the Japanese people. It's a graph of income versus happiness. It's not news to you, particularly, is it? But somehow we get the idea that if we do it right, or get the right amount of things, or do things in the right way, that there won't be loss, or pain, or unhappiness. Lama Yeshe, wonderful, ebullient, wise teacher for many, many people over decades when he came traveled through the West and, and uh, Europe, centers founded all around the world. At one point, not long before he died, the year before he died, he was hospitalized for um, heart problems. And he wrote a letter, a kind of secret letter from the room in the hospital to one of his fellow lamas and friends, talking about how difficult it was in the ICU with all the medications and the unending injections and the people waking him night and day. He said, it, at its worst, 41 days after I became ill, the condition of my body was such that I became the lord of a cemetery. My mind was like that of an anti-god, and my speech like the barking of an old mad dog. That's how bad it was. And he said it took him weeks to work with it and begin to reestablish some steadiness. This was a wonderful and very deeply accomplished meditation teacher. And what he was describing was the first noble truth, that this is part of human life. There is the unspeakable beauty and the vastness of the pain. And our connection to one another is through the joy of being alive and the pain that we share. That's what connects us, what opens compassion and love. So friends of mine a few years ago in the Seva Foundation arranged for the Gyuto Tantric Choir from the Tibetan Gyuto Monastery, the guys who do that, oh, that really deep multivocal chanting, on their tour of America, to go into San Quentin and sing opposite the San Quentin Gospel Choir for the men inside. And the people who arranged this kind of remarkable meeting um, thought there'd be some benefit of, of it. But when the day came for everyone to get together in San Quentin, the San Quentin Gospel Choir came out, and they are all um, African-American, mostly big black guys. We've had them come and sing, some of them sing at Spirit Rock, um, 
a lot of whom look like they've worked out a lot. There's just this this sense of great kind of physical presence. And all of whom are in the gospel choir because they've had some deep uh, spiritual conversion experience in the Christian faith, been in solitary and seen the Lord. Um, and they tell the stories as they sing their songs. They did at Spirit Rock when they came. And as these two groups came to meet, there was a concern in the friends who had invited them. Maybe this isn't going to work. Because after all, um, looking through the eyes they imagined, not really knowing of the San Quentin Gospel Choir, these Tibetan monks coming in might well look like heathens. And then when they actually walked in the room, there were these tiny little guys in skirts, right? <laughs> so there's some kind of setup of unknown um, uh, possibilities here. <laughs> Would they even get along? But the person who invited them was also wise. And so when the Tibetan monks came in and sat down opposite the San Quentin Gospel Choir, he introduced them by name, the abbot, and so forth. And then he turned and he said, almost every one of these men has spent long years in prison. They were imprisoned by the communist army when it took over Tibet. And many of them have been tortured. And after years in prison, they escaped or they were released and they walked over the highest mountains on earth, sometime with rags on their feet because they didn't have shoes, to find some freedom. And now they live in India in a monastery, but they're not really free because they can't go home to their own country. And he said, and what has carried them through all of that? In, the, in their temples, in the prisons, walking over the highest mountains on earth, is their song. And so they'd like to sing their songs to you. And they sang their incredible chants. And then the San Quentin Gospel Choir sang its fantastic songs. And then they all just went and hugged each other because they knew they were brothers. So it's not that we don't suffer. They suffered and you suffer. And it's not that we don't feel joy. We all feel all of those things. They are part of what it is to be human. And sukha and dukkha, pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, alternate. It's when we contract around these feelings that we get entangled and confused. It's not that the feelings are wrong or bad. It's simply that we can begin to become aware of how we react. And this is part of the Buddha's awakening, to see in the cycle of sense impression that there is a quality of feeling with it. And when we notice that, then there's less possibility of getting entangled. As you sit and walk, we already spoke about this. You can begin to notice in a breath, in a step, in opening the door to walk outside, in sitting down and sensing your body as you take your place, certain feelings, pleasant or neutral or unpleasant. And as soon as we're aware of it, it's as if there's a space that opens in the heart and the body and the mind. Ah, yes, just this, instead of all the stories and contractions.
feelings are central to the process of awakening, says the Buddha. It's this place where we get identified, lost, caught. And by paying attention, it's here that freedom is possible. But it's not necessarily so easy. Justice William O. Douglas wrote, at the Supreme Court level where I work, he said, 90% of our decisions are made on emotions and feelings. The other 10% is the rationalizations we give to the feelings about how things should go on the court. And that's supposed to be a place of rationality, isn't it? Although anyone who's observed knows that it's not true for a long time. We have so many ideas about how it should be together with the feelings and they fight with the way things are in the world. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. So there are all these ideas about how it should be and what we should feel and what we should experience. And then we struggle with the world. Now in speaking about feelings, in all this, the Buddhist teachings in no way mean not to feel or not to care passionately about life. From Simone Weil, the danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And one of the worst things that could happen as a misuse of spiritual practice is that one should think that this should take one to where we don't feel or that things don't matter. They matter enormously but there's a wise way that they can matter. And that wisdom comes when we understand the truth of things, including the experience of feelings. For it is the truth that liberates and not our wishes or our efforts. Accepting the truth of things. So Joan Tollefson, who is a Zen teacher that wrote a book recently called Bare Bones Zen, is a woman with a disability. She was born without half of her arm. She talked about growing up and having people look at her and children ask their parents, Mama, what happened to that child or that girl? And the parents saying, shh, don't say anything, don't look at it. But then she realized she'd done the same thing herself. She said, I went to the Zen center to sit and everyone made this nice mudra, this hand gesture of a circle around their navel. And I didn't know quite how to do it with just one. I put one hand there. But it was very uneven and unbalanced and no one mentioned it. And in the end she wrote, I was 29 years old when I realized that I had never really looked at my arm. Took her that long to sit in front of a mirror and look at herself. It is seeing what is true that liberates and not our wishes or our efforts to be free. Now what is the truth about feelings? One truth is they come and go. 
whatever they are. They're not controlled by us. They are an aspect of nature, like the weather. They are selfless. They are unpossessed. You're so angry at someone, or we're so much in love, or we're so afraid about something. And then six months or six years later, where is it? Even that big one. It's like Ozymandias. You remember that poem, the one little pillar in the desert of these great, great palaces that says something like, you know, look upon these ye mighty and, and despair. And there was nothing left. Ramdas tells this old, simple story. He says, there was once a king who had captured a new land and was going to put to death many people. But before doing so, he offered a challenge to their wise men. If someone could come up with something which would make him happy when he was sad and free when he was happy, he would spare their lives. All night the wise men meditated, and in the morning they brought the king a ring. The king said he didn't see how the ring would serve to make him happy when he was sad and free when he was happy. But the wise men pointed to its inscription, and when he read it, he was delighted and spared their lives. And the inscription, very simple, this too shall pass. So our feelings arise with stories and hopes and dreams and with our sense of identity and how we think things should be, and they can change like the wind. Henry Miller wrote, it shocked me one day to discover that everything I had written of the man, I could very well have written the opposite. We're so complex. And as we sit and pay attention, we sense these changing feelings and how they are perspectives. You know, in Psychology 101, one of the favorite ex uh, kind of experiments of perception is they take three buckets of water and put them in the front of the room. One with quite hot water, just barely cool enough to stick your hand in. One with water with ice cubes and neutral temperature water. And then the student or victim, whatever you will, in the psychology class is taken up to the front and two hands are plunged, one in the ice cold bucket and the other in the very hot water and held there for half a minute, as long as you can stand it. And then the hands are pulled out and placed together in the central bucket of neutral temperature water. And usually the expression on the person's face changes to be quizzical and strange because one hand feels that the bucket that it's in is really cold and the other hand feels that the bucket that's in the same water touching it is really hot. And that's also part of the truth of our feelings, isn't it? And that's also part of the truth of our feelings, isn't it? Now on retreats, as we sit, it's very common for us, especially with the kinds of wounding that most of us carry from our families and our culture, to have young feelings that come. We kind of regress at times as we, in the safety of the meditation. And all those old feelings will come that we live a lot of our life from. 
and that are still there in us. I had a woman who I worked with for some period of time in therapy come to me and she'd actually done a lot of inner work around grief and loss. The basic story that she came initially with is that she was recently divorced. She had a young child uh, and her own parents had divorced and she was in tremendous grief about it that she was repeating that cycle. And she felt as she spoke about it initially, tremendous feelings of unworthiness and unlovableness that she was left because she could never really be loved, that love was not trustworthy. And we worked for quite a long time and looked at all the dynamics of her life and her childhood and her marriage and so forth. And one day it came to what it felt like time to go right to the center of it. And so in the space of attention, I asked her a kind of inner meditation to take herself back to the scene that had so traumatized her as a child. And she was back there, three years old, standing at the top of the stairs at the end of a huge fight that her parents had had. And her father had a suitcase hastily packed with things and walked out the door and never said goodbye to her, and never saw her again. And that was the trauma, terrible one, which she'd lived with. And so she felt herself standing there at the top of the stairs, and she felt tears and the tremendous shock of it, and the grief and loss. And then I said, and what did you tell yourself? There is a child, what did you believe? And she said, he doesn't love me. He's leaving. I've done something wrong. I can never be loved. We were there for a time in that place, and then I suggested to her, all right, see if you can stay in the scene, but now go into your father's body. What does it feel like? She went to the bottom of the stairs in his body. She said it's hot and rigid and, and trembling all over, and incredible pain, just incredible pain. She began to weep further. And I said, what's the pain? And she said, well, he's fleeing a marriage that he feels like is killing him, that's been so bad, they've been so terrible to one another, and he's lost his life, and he has to run away in order to stay alive. I said, yes. And how about the three-year-old girl at the top of the stairs? Does he know she's there? And she said, yes, he does. I said, then why doesn't he speak to her? And she said, because if he looks up and even sees her for a moment, he won't be able to leave. He will die, or so he feels. And I said, so is it true that he doesn't love her? And she said, not at all. He loves her so much, he doesn't know what to do. It's tearing him apart. She wept for a while. Then she went into the kitchen. I said, all right, now be in the consciousness of the mother who's there, who was weeping and sitting in the kitchen in, in great pain. And she felt all the sorrow and the loss of that. Finally, she came back to herself. And I said, so this little girl who was abandoned and who had that trauma then told the story that you've told me 
that I'll always be left, that I can never be loved. Who made up that story? I said, well, I did. And I looked at her with her eyes open, and I said, is it true? Is that really who you are? All those feelings. And in that moment, it's as if her whole identity opened up. She saw something in her heart, from her heart. She said, no, I know that's not who I am in this moment. So we're seeking a wisdom in relation to feelings and the identities that we create around them. <clears throat> and to find that wisdom, as it says in the Tao Te Ching, when people see things as ugly, others, excuse me, when people see some things as beautiful, others see them as ugly. When people see some things as good, other things become bad. Being and non-being create each other, difficult and easy support each other, long and short define one another. The master of the Tao acts without doing anything and teaches without speaking. Things arise and she lets them go. Things disappear, she lets them go. She has but doesn't possess, acts but doesn't expect. Do you have the constancy to wait till your mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action of the heart arises by itself? So there's a wisdom we begin to see in sitting and walking in all the moods and all the pleasant and unpleasant that come. And our practice is to begin to study this, to pay attention, to notice the play of feelings as they rise and pass. And mindfulness, which is a sacred attention, offers in the midst of all things the possibility not of a removal from them, but to rest in an openness, in a natural state, in compassion. Now, how to do this? First, we need to know how to, we need to get to know the feelings, to get interested in them. And if we've suppressed feelings in our life, anger, jealousy, depression, joy, passion, we don't even know when we're feeling them. We don't know their names. I have a list of 500 different feelings. I took some of them off this, 50 so. Sleepy, sympathetic, Silly, sad, sober, spacious, jealous, jovial, joyful, blissful, broken-hearted, disheartened, depressed, delighted, driven, ambitious, ambivalent, antsy, antagonistic, argumentative, apathetic, apoplectic, amused, proud, pleased, prudish, Embarrassed, humbled, honored, fearful, frightened, greedy, grave, grateful, calm, concentrated, claustrophobic, curious, 
compassionate, and it goes on. A dictionary of feelings. And so we begin to notice the play of feelings, to sense them in the body, and sense them in the mind as they come and go. And then you can start to feel which ones are connected with a contraction, with the body of fear, with the small sense of self, with that sense of insufficiency that so many of us carry. And by making space, noticing those feelings, a greater sense of freedom comes. I remember one teacher I had in India who said that meditation teachers don't cry. I was going through a hard time. One of the things that I learned in uh, parts of the practice in the cultures in Asia was not to feel very much. There were good, it, there was good advice about it from certain teachers. Ajahn Chah talked about how important weeping had been to him in meditation. If you haven't really wept, you haven't begun to meditate. But more often, it was just be calm and let them come and go and don't, you know, don't get caught in them. So sometimes, as well as noticing what's coming in feelings, there's really a process of reclaiming feelings because we've been so cut off from them. A poem. What I heard at the discount department store. Don't touch that. Stop your whining, too. Stop it. I mean it. You know I do. If you don't stop, I'll give you something to cry about right here. And don't you think I won't, either? So she did. She slapped him across the face. You could hear the snap halfway across the store. And then he wasn't whining anymore. Instead, he wept. His little body heaved and shivered. He was seven or eight. She was maybe thirty. Above her left breast, the pin said, Nurse's Aid. Now they walked hand in hand down the aisle between the tables piled with tennis shoes and plastic bags of socks. I told you I would. You knew I would. You can't get away with shit like that with me. You know you can't. You're not in school anymore. You can get away with that, with murder there, but you can't get away with shit like me. Stop that crying now, I say, or I'll give you a little something like I did before. Stop that now. You better stop. That's better. That's a whole lot better. You know you can't do that with me. You're with your mother now. And we've seen it or felt it. When I came back from the monastery, <clears throat> the five years, first time I was in Asia, got involved in an intimate relationship with a woman that I'd known before the monastery and started to be with her. And she would say, where should we go to dinner? And I'd say, oh, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> it's all equal to me. I mean, whatever they put in the bowl is fine. <laughs> She'd say, what movie do you want to go to? Say, I don't know, whatever movie you'd like. Um, where should we go on vacation? Oh, it doesn't matter to me. I like everywhere. You know how we monks are. It drove her crazy. Then she said, well, what do you like? And I stopped and I said, I don't know. She actually gave me an assignment. She bought a little notebook. And she said, every day I want you to write down five things that you like and five things that you don't like just so you can learn who you are again. 
So in different ways, through that pain, and that's a terribly painful story, and yet we know it, or in simpler ways, we've been taught not to feel and not to be awake to what we're feeling. So a straightforward and basic task is to learn the vocabulary of feeling in our bodies, our hearts, our minds. And then once we begin to notice them, we can study and get interested. Which are pleasant? Which are neutral? Which are unpleasant? What kind of reactions do they evoke? And it doesn't mean thinking about them, but noting them with awareness. Do they expand? Does one feeling you're noting fear, fear? How long does it last? Does it turn to another? Fear, fear, oh, it goes away. Or it turns into sadness. If I noted how nice, fear, it disappears. But not always. Fear, fear, oops, terror, terror. You begin to notice how one feeling changes to another. And you give it space to open and show itself. So it's learning what the feelings are, sensing when they're pleasant or neutral or unpleasant, that root of them, and how we get entangled, the reactions. And gradually allowing the heart to open and realize that feelings are not all there is to the heart. That the heart is greater. It's, there is a spaciousness, a sacred emptiness a wholeness that contains all these and more. Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche, speaking of the awakened heart, he said, if you search for the awakened heart, if you put your hand through your rib cage and feel for it, there's nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft, and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. And yet it is this tender heart that has the capacity to heal and contain and transform the world. And what begins to happen, not by our removal from life, from the life of the body or the life of feelings, but our openness to the body in the body and to the feelings in the feelings, is that they begin to transform themselves we're led to a deeper space of feeling. And even the wounded and terrible things that have been so hard to feel somehow become redeemed. It's like this story of the Japanese soldiers who were left in World War II on some of those islands when the war swept by and no one picked them up. Remember those stories? And five or ten years or more later, there'd be one that was discovered in the caves or the forest. And there were a few over the years that were recognized and brought back by local people. But sometimes it would be heard years later. 
And then you wonder, well, how were they treated when they were found ten years later? What they did is that when one of these soldiers was located, the first contact was always made very carefully. Someone who'd been a Japanese officer would take out his old uniform, maybe his sword out of the closet, and they'd get an old military boat, take it to the area where the lost soldier was sighted. And the officer would walk through the jungle, calling out until the soldier was found. And when they met, the officer would thank the soldier with tears in his eyes for his loyalty and courage in trying to defend a country that he felt was at risk. And ask about all his experiences and welcome him back. And only after some time would the soldier gently be told that the war was over, that his country was at peace again, and he wouldn't have to fight anymore. And when he returned home, he was given an honorable welcome. I think that's true with our feelings as well, with our sorrows or our joys. For some people, joy is scary and frightening. There is a kind of mercy and no blame, all the things that we've used our feelings to try to help us with a mercy that can allow them to return into the fold of our heart. And as we do, they become transformed of their own. It's not that anger completely disappears, but it becomes the demons guarding the gates of the temple. And there's a place that anger turns to that loves justice and will sit or stand in the face of terrible things and say no but not from anger, but from that place of inner strength that is its real root. Like Joanna Macy outside of the nuclear reactor in Chernobyl, bearing witness to what happened to all the children and the people there who can't go into their forests for 500 or 1,000 years. It becomes the strength of heart to work for justice. And that greed and that desire and love for things that love for beauty can become a sensitivity. A care for the beauty of things and a recognition of how we share them. Strawberries are too delicate to be picked by machine. The perfectly ripe ones bruise even at too heavy a human touch. So we have to realize that every strawberry we have ever eaten Every piece of fruit has been picked by calloused human hands. Every piece of lettuce, every glass of wine, every loaf of bread represents someone's knees, someone's aching back and hips, someone with a bandana on her wrist to wipe away the sweat. We cannot get away from the truth that the only way we can live is to feed each other. And so the love of beauty turns into a sensitivity. It's there. And even the space, spaciness, the delusion, the not knowing, the confusion, has its value when it's transformed. My favorite poem from Zen Master Ryokan. Spring morning, my begging is finished. I hang my bowl by the side of the Buddhist shrine, stopping to play with the children. Last year, a foolish monk 
this year, no change. <laughs> that kind of simplicity and humility that doesn't seek to control or have power over the world, but the spacious heart that allows for things as they are with an honoring of them. To know the world of feelings is to be able to rest like the Buddha or the mother of the Buddha, the mother of the world. And it's not much that we need to do. It's just to be mindful, moment by no moment, with the breath and body, with the pleasant and unpleasant and neutral feelings that come, as if we could bow to each one and name them. Gently each one received from that place of Buddha nature. And as we do, we sense our place in the center of this great dance of birth and death. It's like Zen Master Suzuki Roshi when he was dying saying, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. Maybe everyone will suffer because of the physical or the spiritual agony. But that's all right. It is all right to have a limited body like mine or like yours. If you had a limitless life, it would be a real problem for you. If when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, Sad Buddha, Happy Buddha. Therein lies our freedom. A story from a friend of mine who runs the Zen Hospice Project. The day before his death, Patrick was in a waking coma. His face was full of tension, his head thrust back. The muscles in his throat were tight and constricted. Each breath was a struggle. Clearly, this was another stage of dying. But to me, something seemed stuck. A famous teacher with experience in these things told me that his spirit was trying to leave his body, that I should touch the top of his head to show the way. A physician told me to increase the morphine to relax his breathing. A body worker told me to hold certain pressure points on his feet to relieve the tension. I tried them all, but nothing changed. Instinctively, I just wanted to wrap myself around him. I climbed into bed, cradling John in the curve of my arms. I remember rocking him back and forth, and as I did, I began to sing lullabies to him. Not the nursery rhyme variety, but the kind you make up. Words and sounds mixing randomly. Love sounds, I call them. Every parent has done this for a sick or frightened child. And as I sang softly in his ear and kissed his forehead, my hands knew what to do, though there was no goal in mind. My fingers gently caressing his throat, stroking his face then my open hand circling his heart again and again. We lost all sense of time. I could feel him sink into me, my body cushioning what was left of his bony form. Eventually, his throat began to relax. His head came forward. His eyes opened. They looked relieved. After, I wondered if I had done the right thing. Maybe I should have followed the teacher's advice. Had I pulled him back from some near-death state?
stopped some process of release? I don't know really, but I do know that the heart has to be soft before any of us can be free. I feel somehow as we practice together, sitting and walking and facing the different experiences that rise and fall so many times in the course of a day, that we're learning how to die here, how to be unafraid in the face of pain or loss or death. And as we learn how to die, we learn how to live, that this is a training for both. And at the end of life, certainly in the Tibetan tradition, you are given the whispered-in-the-ear teachings. As you lie there, someone comes up and whispers in your ear, O nobly born, O you who are the son or daughter of the Buddha, who have taken this noble human birth, remember your true nature. Remember who you really are and let go of all that binds you. Let go into that light. This is your birthright. This is where you came from and where you have always been. Let's sit for a moment. So like the weather of the desert, Allow this awareness of feelings, like the breath that comes and goes, the waves, pleasant, neutral and unpleasant, all the feelings, to be known and rest in that place of knowing in your heart. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.